Good morning. I'm Ruth Seidel. I'm the associate pastor here at North, and we are in a summer sermon series called Small Books, Big Questions. We've looked at Jonah and Joel, and this week we are in the book of Amos. The context of Amos is so similar to our situation in Seattle in 2017 uh, that it's kind of stunning. I don't know if you saw the article. I think it's a series going on right now in the Seattle Times about Seattle's wealth and the boom that is happening currently in our area. Uh, it says, it, the title was, Seattle's newest boom in wealth is cre- it, it, it has created are thrilling and unsettling. It described the median income as $80,000 and the price of a house now currently upwards of $700,000. So while some are prospering, others are really struggling to make ends meet. It's leading to 40-story apartment towers going up as well as tent villages. And it asked the question in the article, what does it mean to be middle class or poor in Seattle? And can we learn from history and find a balance? Well, we're going to look at history today, just eight centuries before Christ, when the prophet Amos spoke to the nation of Israel during a period of affluence unlike anything probably except for the period of King Solomon. And here is a list of the concerns that I got from the book of Amos. God's concerns about the nation. The rich had the luxury of owning several homes ostentatiously furnished with the finest materials, while the poor were used for cheap labor, taxed unfairly, and had no access to justice in the courts. Women in that culture had a lot of, the wealthy elite women, had a lot of time to pamper their bodies, and women's attractiveness was another means of showing off the wealth of a family. Fortunes were amassed by ignoring the needs of the powerless. Fraud and unethical business practices ruined people who had no recourse because the courts were biased towards the rich. The bottom line was the only thing that mattered. It was the only priority for employers, regardless of the harm done to employees and the community. The men lived to work and the women lived for the pleasures they demanded that their husbands provided. Anybody just a tiny bit uncomfortable? (laughs) When I heard it was the book of Amos, which I last studied about 10 years ago, I went, whoa, how do we do that in a week? Uh, a, A great Jewish scholar named Abraham Heschel says that prophets employ notes one octave too high for our ears. Prophets sound like screeching. They're hard to listen to, and I appreciate the prayer today that God would give us ears to hear. The big question that this book brought up for me is, what are we supposed to do with wealth and influence? So let's pray as we approach the scripture. Father, we're grateful that your word is timely always. Your word is always in time. Thank you for the way that Amos shows us your heart for people Help us to hear, Lord, the places that you want us to step into your stream of justice and righteousness. In Christ's name, amen. Boy, it is really creaky up here this morning. I don't know, I'm trying not to move. Um, (laughs) Probably the best-known book 
uh, best-known verse in the whole book of Amos, you can hear in the sonorous voice of Martin Luther King Jr., let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a mighty stream, from chapter 5, verse 24. And that's the river that we are called to step into this morning. We aren't the source of the river. We don't provide the river of justice and righteousness. God is the origin of that river. He is setting things right in his creation. And justice is really about the restoration of God's rule. It's a coming torrent of water that is unstoppable. However, unlikely, it looks today or looked in prosperous Israel in the 8th century BC. Mark Lamberton has a beautiful definition of justice, which was helpful to me. He says it is rightly ordered power that promotes human flourishing for all people. Justice is rightly ordered power that promotes human flourishing for all people. And we are like little uh, creeks and rivulets of water who are invited to join the river, to step in to the never-failing stream of God's justice and righteousness. I had a teenager, I, he might even be here today, who was very hard to wake up. And uh, we got something called the sonic boom alarm clock. And it does, it's exactly what it's described perfectly. It actually shakes the bed, and it emits this, this piercing uh, noise that literally, like, loosens your fillings. It's, it's amazing, just an amazing alarm clock. Um, and Amos is a kind of alarm clock. The prophets are like alarm clocks. They are meant to wake God's people up. If we're going to join the river of justice, we first have to wake up to what's wrong. And waking up isn't pleasant any more than it was when you were 16. Waking up especially to truths that we have been pretending not to know. That's the hardest thing to wake up from. Waking up to things we've been, been pretending we can't see are wrong. The ancient nation of Israel had only existed actually as, as a country under three kings, under Saul and David and Solomon. And then Solomon's sons quarreled and the kingdom uh, was split as a result. And the southern kingdom, you'll see on the map, is, was called Judah. That was the tribes of Judah and Benjamin and also the Levites who served in Jerusalem. And then the ten northern tribes through much of the Old Testament, when they talk about Israel, that's what they're talking about, that northern kingdom. Sometimes it's also called Ephraim. Now, Amos was just a shepherd, and he was called from the south to go to the north and begin speaking judgments. And as he's speaking the judgments against these warring nations, so this little, the, the map that showed the countries in that area is about the size of half of the state of Washington. And there are these eight kingdoms and powers fighting each other in that area. And his audience would have been right with him, chapter 1, where he starts talking about Damascus. Yes, Damascus Gate is going to be broken down. They would have been cheering as he said that Gaza's fortresses would be destroyed. They would have been amening and raising their hands to the burning of Tyre and Edom and Ammon and Moab. The people of Israel would have received those first chapter and a half oracles from the mouth of Amos as words of great news. Then this nobody from the south 
begins to speak of the sins of Judah, his own country. And maybe the northerners would feel a little discomfort, but they would have thought, yeah, Judah, is, we're way better than Judah. Judah is not really a great place. But the book goes on, and those turn out to be just the appetizers of God's judgment. Imagine their shock and anger when they realize they are the main course of God's judgment. Our scripture reading said, raw truth is never popular, and Amos was not popular. I don't know if any of the prophets were. Jesus, the final prophet, was certainly not popular. It got him killed. Raw truth can get you killed. Judgment and punishment as a subject are not popular. J.I. Packer, in his classic book, Knowing God, says this, Part of God's moral perfection is his perfection in judgment. Would a God who put no distinction between the beasts of history, the Hitlers and the Stalins, and his own saints, be praiseworthy morally and perfect? Not to judge the world would be to show moral indifference. The final proof that God is a perfect moral being is the fact that he has committed himself to judge the world. Judgment means that evil will be disposed of authoritatively, decisively, and finally. At some point, a moral God must act. So what are the sins that put God over the top? The, the, the uh, form that the Amos speaks is he talks about each nation having three sins and then four. So it's like God is counting, and the, there's one sin that finally pushes him over the, over the limit where he has to act. So what, what were those sins that put him over the top? In chapter 1, verse 3, and I hope you have your Bibles. I love that Scott reminded us of that last week, and I hope that you're maybe reading these books before we talk about them on Sunday. I dare you. I dare you to read them. Uh, so the sin for Damascus in 1, verse 3 is brutality in warfare. They mowed people down, he says, like a brutal threshing machine. And God has limits even in war for the treatment of people because people are God's concern. In chapter 1, verse 6, the last straw in Gaza's list of moral abuses was their kidnapping of whole communities and selling them as slaves. God is outraged at human trafficking because people are God's concern. Verse 9, Tyre violated trade and peace treaties. God's concern is people, not nations getting the better of other nations. Verse 11, the Edomites. The Edomites were descendants and relatives, really, of Jacob through Esau, and they hated the Israelites with such passion that it says God was outraged by their stifling of any human compassion. In other words, they fed their bitterness and resentment, and God's concern, again, is people not getting revenge. Then he goes on to Ammon and Moab, and it says that in land grabs for power and control, they savagely butchered pregnant women and their unborn babies, and they treated human remains with disrespect. God will not tolerate the abuse of people for political gain. God is incensed at atrocities, even against dead bodies, because people are his concern. And the final court in which our nation and every nation will be judged is not the UN, not public opinion polls, not even the Geneva Convention. 
God was and is counting the transgressions of his moral code and every nation stands accountable to the high court of heaven on the basis of their care for human beings. Jesus affirmed that this is the priority of his kingdom in Mark 12 when he said, there are no commandments more important than these. Love God, love people. So after dealing with these surrounding nations, God turns to the condition of his own people who are judged by a higher standard. Another prophet, Jesus, spoke about the the judgment of people on the inside in Luke chapter 12. If you want to turn there or you can just listen as I read it. Luke 12, beginning at verse 47, Jesus' words... That servant who knows his master's will and does not get ready or does not do what his master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Raw truth hard words from, 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 the, from the voice of Christ, that the more light we have, the more serious it is when we reject it. And that is Judah's sin. Judah rejected the revelation of God. Israel's sin, he goes on to talk about, is basically sleeping through the alarm clock. God has sent a warning, and then he's acted, has sent a warning, and then he's acted, has sent a warning, and then he's acted. Over and over and over in chapter 4, they talk about Israel not responding to what God is uh, warning them about, sleeping through the alarm clock. And then in chapter 6, verse 3, here are some other highlights from Israel's uh, past. Woe to you who are rushing headlong to disaster. Catastrophe is just around the corner. Woe to those who live in luxury and expect everyone else to serve them. Woe to you who live only for today, indifferent to the fate of others. Woe to the playboys, the playgirls who think life is a party just for them. Woe to those addicted to feeling good, life without pain. Those obsessed with looking good, life without wrinkles. They could care less about their country going to ruin. And I'm reading it deliberately in the message because I think sometimes when we read it in the language of the street, which is what most of of the New Testament particularly was written in, we miss the force. We miss the force of the words when we are sort of interpreting them a little bit like Shakespeare. They don't quite touch our hearts. And again, I hope you are reading these words for yourself. I taught at a Bible study for many years, and I always thought I had an audience any pastor would dream dream of because they came prepared with questions already engaged with the scripture and this summer these little books most of them would take half an hour to read so i'd encourage you to get a physical bible where you can write and underline and write question marks and asterisks and read these little books if we want to get into the river of god's justice and righteousness we must wake up to what's wrong It's serious for us to hear Pastor Scott last week tell us to pay attention to our life, to return to God, to release the things that are keeping us from Christ's best. It's serious because we've been warned. 
you know, in, in the comics, they often show God as like there's a cloud and there's a cosmic hand coming down to thump someone on the head. And, and that is a thoroughly wrong-headed idea about God because God's judgment is always warned of. There is always a progression, like I said in chapter 4, coming with warning after warning after warning. In fact, when we studied the book of Revelation a number of years ago at Bible study, which I had always avoided, the major message I got through Revelation is that God has to be dragged to judgment. He's so reluctant. He gives time after time after time. He's actually kind of a permissive parent until finally he, his, his moral justice requires him to act. Here's some of the ways that I've received personal warnings that I need to wake up to what's wrong. Sometimes the warning comes through relationships going sideways or even blowing up. Sometimes it's been the inability to sleep at night or something in my health. Sometimes it's recognizing that there are areas of life in which I persistently am not flourishing. These are all alarm clocks meant to wake me up to something I'm not awake to. And there are warnings in our community. We wake up when we pay attention to the places that people are not flourishing People around us are not flourishing. It might be that you, your kids, are flourishing. They're in a great school, but maybe God is calling you to support the education of children in struggling schools. Maybe you are enjoying the rise of value of your home, but God might be asking you to support organizations like our partner at Vision House who believe that children should never be homeless. And thank you to Matt and Constance for encouraging us to remember them with a food drive in the last couple of weeks. May God wake us up to places that people are not flourishing in our community. Waking up to what's wrong is the first step into the stream of justice and righteousness. The second action, the second action that we take in joining that stream was pointed out in, in the reading at the beginning in these three ways. Verse 4, seek me and live. Seek the Lord and live. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Seeking God and seeking good are never very far apart. If we are doing good, we will encounter God. And if we are seeking God, he will call us to do good. And I've asked Alana, uh, Elena Atchison to come up and tell us a little bit about an adventure that she and her family have been gone, gone on this, this year, uh, an invitation that they received to do good in the community. So come on over here. I'll let you have the pulpit. <laughs> Thanks, Elena. I'm just going to ask you a couple of questions because um, I was very moved to hear kind of your story and what's been happening with your family. So first, how did you wake up to the need in the refugee resettlement area of life? Yeah, uh, thanks for asking me to share today. Um, first of all, my husband and I have recognized God's heart throughout all of scriptures. You've been talking about um, how God cares for the poor and the vulnerable the widow, the fatherless, the persecuted, the foreigner, basically everyone, but specifically the other. 
Um, so that was one, you know, our, kind of our first wake up that's in our mind. And then as we just saw the news and as you all have heard reports of um, the refugees coming and uh, fleeing from violence and persecution, you know, we, we began to ask ourselves, you know, what can we do? Um, and so we started to give money. Um, we've donated items to World Relief. We um, have advocated and prayed for refugees, and God kind of moved us along um, in those steps. And so uh, when Bethany invited us to be a part of a good neighbor team to welcome refugees, it was just kind of a natural next step to say yes to that. Thank you. And so you did welcome a new family. What was your experience like? Um, so our experience, I use two words. It was chaotic, um, but it was also beautiful. Um, things happened very quickly. All of this came together at the end of January uh, when that first initial refugee ban was issued. Um, and then subsequently it was halted by the courts. And so World Relief moved very quickly to assign our team to a newly arriving refugee family. Um, so our team was invited to the airport to meet the family, and it was a, a mother from Iraq and her four children who were age six, five, three, and one. Um, and so for me, just meeting her, meeting them for the first time was really powerful, really meaningful. Um, I just felt an instant connection to her. At the time, I also had four kids and was pregnant with our fifth. And so just imagining the single mom literally fleeing from her home with her kids, first to Turkey and now to the U.S., a place she had never been, um, you know, just imagining that was, was really um, impactful for me. Uh, so after that initial meeting, we went home and we continued to pray, but now our prayers had faces and names and we knew a little more specifics of, of what they needed and then uh, one week after they arrived, we were asked if we could host the family in our home. Um, they didn't have permanent housing yet. So we had absolutely no idea what we were getting into. But uh, again, we felt that nudge of the Holy Spirit moving us forward. So we said yes to that. Um, and that was uh, honestly very difficult. And it was very intense. Um, we had eight children in our house. My oldest is nine. So we had eight kids, nine and under, living in our home, which is fine, a fine size, but not huge. Um, I was seven months pregnant at the time. Uh, Nihad, the mother, knew some English, but there were many language barriers, and we had some misunderstandings. Um, there were tears and arguments, to put it nicely, among the kids. Um, <laughs> I learned very quickly I needed to set boundaries just for us all to, to function. Um, I would escape to my bedroom three times a day just to pray and to cry out to God for help because I really just could not do it on my own. Um, I reached out to friends and asked for prayer. They prayed for us. They also brought us meals and um, offered to watch my kids. So I really felt the support of um, the community of believers too. And so I really felt like God helped me, strengthened me, um, and gave me the energy to host for those 10 days. Thank you. And what's been the impact on your family and her family? Yeah, so um, I said it was chaotic, but it was also beautiful. Um, my kids, the impact on my kids was just really amazing to see. They just really rose to the occasion. 
Um, they share their toys, and anyone who has kids knows it's hard for kids to share their toys. Um, they made friends with the kids who spoke no English. Uh, they just put up with the noise and the chaos and shared their space. So I'm very, very proud of my kids for really doing that. Um, and they got to see our faith in action. So we had talked about refugees, we had prayed for refugees, now we actually had them in our home. So that was a really neat part of it. Um, it was wonderful just to get to know Nihad and her kids. Um, she was gracious, she was generous, she was very patient. Again, I'm imagining the single mom with her four kids traveling for two years. They had been traveling to get to work, to Seattle finally. Um, and she was so patient with them and I would think, could I do that? So I learned a lot from her. Um, we formed a really beautiful friendship. We are still friends. We still, you know, see each other. Um, and then just kind of generally, the impact for our family is we moved from this kind of general vague idea of refugees to knowing a specific family of refugees. But then even beyond that, um, as we continue to pray for Nihad and her family and... Um, got to know them, it just, it no longer even felt appropriate to call them refugees because they were our friends. Um, they were refugees, but that's not their whole story. In fact, it's actually a tiny piece of their story, um, and it's certainly not their whole identity. Um, so just to be able to recognize that um, each refugee or immigrant has their own story. Uh, each one is made in the image of God, and each one is loved by God. And it really was a privilege for our family to be able to see that in Nihad and her kids. And then for their family, um, I don't have to guess at the impact because she was able to share publicly um, at the Gates Foundation. She was invited to speak there a few weeks ago. So I heard from her own mouth um, the impact it had on her family. And for her, she just repeated again and again how much that um, initial interaction in the airport had meant to her. She, they had come from Turkey, where they had fled initially, and their experience there was not good. They had um, faced discrimination, the kids had been bullied. Uh, they also had heard while there that Americans don't like refugees, that we don't, didn't want refugees. Um, and so when they came, they were fearful of what they would find, that they would encounter hostility um, once they got to Seattle. But instead, um, what they saw when they got to the airport were just the smiling faces of our team um, ready to welcome them. We literally had this huge sign that said, Welcome to America. And um, that just initial kindness and love was um, just profound and had a really lasting impact on her. So she repeated that again and again. And then just practically, um, the Good Neighbor team, we were able to show her love and support through finding them housing eventually, um, helping to get the kids enrolled in school, helping them learn how to use public transportation, um, getting her enrolled in English classes, helping her find a job, learning how to use the chip reader at the grocery <laughs> store, you know, all these little things that we just take for granted she had to learn. Um, and so she expressed that all of these things helped to ease the transition for them and also, in her own words, helped them to look ahead to the future with hope um, instead of dwelling on the tragedy that had brought them here in the first place. So um, I think for both of our families, we both learned that people are people. Um, we are all created and loved by God, and I think we are more similar than we realize. 
uh, we learned that we need to put aside the labels and just get to know people. Um, we need to build bridges and not walls. Um, I believe this is what Jesus asks us to do. And again, we just really feel privileged that we were given the opportunity to build those bridges through befriending this family. Thanks a lot. I appreciate you sharing. Thank you. Hard to follow that. that that's uh, feet on the ground, seeking good and seeking God. The third area that uh, we are called to in entering that stream of justice and righteousness is that we would align with Jesus. You know, God's people, Israel, we learn from, thought they were better than, better than the other nations. They thought that their religious activity sort of gave them a free pass morally with God. And so Amos gives us a great picture of the true measure of our lives in uh, chapter 7. He says, God showed me this vision. My master was standing beside a wall, and in his hand he held a plumb line. And God said to me, what do you see, Amos? And I said, a plumb line. Then my master said, look what I've done. I've hung a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I've spared them for the last time. This is it. And then he goes on to, to talk about some of their sins. But the plumb line, for those of you who don't know, is sort of a building tool that helps you to get a straight, straight line um, with gravity. And sometimes I think we too think we are doing okay because we compare ourselves, either how we're handling money or time or what we do. Uh, we're measuring ourselves against the wrong measure. Justice and righteousness really are the plumb line, but we've been given a life to see. That plumb line for us is the life of Jesus Christ. He is the invisible God made visible. And when we align to the, to the life of Christ, we get to see wh what is straight and what is crooked. Uh, a, a number of years ago, we were working on the house, and a friend was helping us build a wall, and he was choosing two-by-fours. I went with him to Home Depot because I was going to pay for them, and I assumed it's like pickles. You just take them off the shelf. You take what's there. But no, each two-by-four he's carefully looking at. And he's showing me how they vary, that they're with knots and how they were cut. Some of the boards were really, really had a bend in them. They weren't even close to straight, and they would have been impossible to build with. God is looking for straight boards. He's looking for straight boards to build his kingdom, but he finds none. Romans 3.10 says, there's none righteous, no, not one. And yet somehow, in participating in the life of God together through Christ, we join the stream of God's right standing and his right action in the world. And people in the Bible are declared righteous, although there are no, none righteous on their own. Job is declared righteous because he rescued the poor and the fatherless, because he was considerate of those who worked for him, and because he did not make wealth his goal. David was called righteous because of his merciful heart towards his enemy, King Saul. Abraham is declared righteous for his trust in God and obedience to God's call. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that Christ takes our crookedness, our sin, and that allows God to give us Jesus' righteousness so that we can become boards he can build with. 
So very, three quickly very practical applications for us. One is, first of all, bless others. And really, I'm not sure I need to say much more than listening to Elena's story. I love this verse in 2 Corinthians 9, 8, and 9 that says, God is able to provide you with every blessing in abundance so that by always having enough of everything, you may share abundantly in every good work. As it is written, he scatters abroad, he gives to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. So I want you to think this morning just a little bit about what you have in your hands. A spare bedroom? Some of you blessed an intern this year with a home. A yard? Many of you offer hospitality, perhaps to our youth gatherings. Food? Many of you contributed and blessed families in need at Vision House in the last couple of weeks. Children? Maybe you've invited your children's friends to participate in Bethany North. Education, time, connections, whatever you have in your hands can bless others. And we align with Jesus when we make it available to his creative use. I went to a funeral on Thursday of a woman who has impacted me and thousands of others in our community. She taught uh, a Bible study for many years. She trained and supported young life leaders. She helped launch professional women's fellowships. She served on the boards of Krista and Northwest Medical Teams. She prayed, she encouraged, uh, and she shared Jesus with a lot of people. And I've known her for 30 plus years and thought she was very well described at the funeral as an indomitable force for Jesus. But I'm still kind of reeling with a piece of information I got that I never knew about Doris, that she was a pregnant high school dropout at 15. I wish I had known that part of her story. I wish I had known because it has allowed me to praise and give honor to God all the more for what Doris allowed God to make of her life. Use what's in your hands to bless others. Give God room to make of you what he will. And then we are to steward well the resources we have. It means to manage. We are the managers, we're not the owners. It's not my time, it's not my house, it's not my money, it's God's. We have 168 hours to manage a week. We have money in our bank accounts to manage. We have health, we have relationships. Um, I know when my hair turned gray, because uh, two, in 2007, it turned gray when I taught the book of Amos last. <laughs> I was asked to help a young woman in Nairobi go to university, to Daystar University there, a Christian college that is training wonderful leaders in Kenya, and the cost was $736. Well, I had just finished my Quicken summary for my accountant, here, and um, looked at my expenses for the year, and I noticed that the amount needed for the scholarship, $736, was exactly the amount I spent in 2006 dyeing my hair. Exactly, exactly. That was an alarm clock, a wake-up call. A girl in Kenya could go to university if I stopped dyeing my hair? And it's not, I'm not at all suggesting that hair dye is evil. I'm saying 
God invites us. God invites us so individually that we get to give with joy. I had an invitation to step into the river of justice in Africa. It turns out when I was sending my son to university, I could have sent 12 kids to Kenyon University. And I really smiled when we studied Proverbs and I stumbled on this verse in 1631. A gray head is a crown of glory. It is found in the way of righteousness. <laughs> the prophet Amos made my gray hair an invitation into the stream of God's righteousness. And I have to say, that was 10 years ago. I did participate as she went through college, and I'd kind of forgotten about Daystar <laughs> till I started doing this lecture again. Maybe it's time to step back in that river. Aligning with Jesus means that what we do with money is we enjoy the, gift of God, the gifts of God in our life, Jesus was known as someone who enjoyed life. In fact, he was accused of enjoying life a little too much. We are to steward faithfully what we have, and we are, most importantly, blessing others. So I want us to take a moment today and just consider, what's an area of injustice that you are aware of? I've put post-it notes on the prayer tables and on the tables as you exit if you want a post-it note. I would love to have you write one area of injustice that you care about on that post-it note, and I want you to put it on your mirror in the bathroom. And this summer, every time you brush your teeth, I want you to pray about that area of injustice in the world. Is there a way, God, for me to step into your river, your work in this area. Baby steps. We take baby steps. Maybe your baby step will be to attend the Race and Reconciliation event July 18th. Maybe it will be to talk to Rochelle Hume about how we can do little things that really help foster families and encourage them. Maybe your little step will be to visit one cup on a Tuesday morning and see what's going on or to talk to one of our chaplains of presence or to pray for one of our chaplains of presence. Some of you may be feeling stirred up today because you have been the object of injustice and I want to remind you that we will have a prayer team up here this morning and your baby step might be to come and get prayer and begin to talk about your experience of injustice. Alana and Nathan started by prayer. And that makes it pretty scary to pray, doesn't it? And they started by giving money. But can you hear that it was an invitation to them? Amos brings us the good news that people are God's concern and there's an in unstoppable river of justice and righteousness where God is at work. This morning, may we step into that river. Amen. Music. Maybe I'll pray. <laughs> God, thanks for this day. Thanks for the way that your love for people is worked out through people, that we get to be hands and feet of love and grace, that we get to exhibit your priorities in the world around us. Lord, would you give us hope for the places of injustice we care about? Will you help us to find a step we can take today? towards being part of that river in Christ's name. Amen.